Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The Glen Mills Schools, the oldest existing reform school in the United States until it was shut down in 2019, is seeking to reopen under a new name. In June, an entity called the Clock Tower Schools formed with the mission of running a court-ordered educational program for boys. In September, Clock Tower quietly submitted an application for a new license with the Pennsylvania Department of Human Services the same agency that shut down the prestigious reform school after a 2019 Philadelphia Inquirer investigation revealed decades of systemic abuse and cover-ups. Lawmakers and youth advocates are already calling for the state to reject the new application. Officials say no decision has been made. Much remains unclear about the rebrand from Glen Mills to Clock Tower, likely an allusion to the massive timepiece that sits atop the main campus building. What is clear is that the school has been busy courting state officials since its closure two years ago. Glenn Mills paid more than $160,000 on lobbying efforts between April 2019 and September 2021, according to disclosure records filed with the state. Clock Tower has not reported any lobbying activity. Founded in 1826 as the Philadelphia House of Refuge, Glen Mills long held distinction as the oldest school for delinquent boys in the country. The institution drew court-ordered placements from across the country and netted more than $40 million in annual revenue, largely from taxpayers. Philadelphia, which accounted for about 40% of Glen Mills students, paid $52,000 per year for each boy it sent to the suburban campus. Within weeks of reporting by the Philadelphia Inquirer that found counselors violently attacked boys for minor misconduct and then coerced the youths into staying quiet, juvenile courts across the country pulled boys from the campus, the Delaware County District Attorney launched a criminal investigation, and the state DHS shut down Glenn Mills for the first time in nearly two centuries, saying the systemic nature of the abuse warranted locking the doors for good. In the wake of the scandal, Governor Tom Wolf also announced an overhaul of the state's licensing process and convened a task force to conjure up ideas on how to fix the juvenile justice system, which recently released a 64-page report with dozens of recommended reforms. But advocates and lawmakers are questioning how much has really changed and whether those charges warrant a second chance for Glenn Mills under a new name. Philadelphia City Council member Helen Jim, who sat on Wolf's Juvenile Justice Task Force, said transparency alone won't cut it. She said the state had not taken sufficient action to correct the problems at both Glen Mills and other residential youth facilities that have harbored abuse in recent years. Wolf's office said it is working to update DHS licensing regulations and enact other reforms, some of which require legislative approval. An Illinois police union ousted an officer from its membership 
who faces criminal charges for exposing a squad car video that shows his fellow officers slapping and cursing a man dying of a drug overdose. Sergeant Javier Escuera, a 27-year-old veteran of the Joliet Police Department, said that he's become a pariah among his coworkers since July 2020, when he publicly shared footage from January of that year showing how officers treated a handcuffed black man in medical distress. Officers slapped Eric Lurie, restricted his airway, and shoved a baton in his mouth hours before his death. Escuera faces up to 20 years in prison after department officials opened a criminal investigation into his actions and prosecutors charged him with four counts of official misconduct. Members of the Joliet Police Officers Association on Wednesday voted 35 to 1 to expel. In a letter, union leaders described his conduct as reprehensible. Quote, they all wanted me charged, they all want me gone, and by doing this, it's gratification for them. And after everything that's happened, do I really want to be associated with them? Esqueda said of the union's vote. According to a new study by the Prison Policy Initiative called States of Incarceration, the Global Context 2021, Incarceration rates in every U.S. state are out of line with the entire world. This disparity is not explainable by the differences in crime or violent crime. For four decades, the U.S. has been engaged in a globally unprecedented experiment to make every part of its criminal justice system more expansive and more punitive. As a result, incarceration has become the nation's default response to crime with, for example, 70% of convictions resulting in confinement, far more than other developed nations with comparable crime rates. Massachusetts, the state with the lowest incarceration rate in the nation, would rank 17th in the world with an incarceration rate higher than Iran, Colombia, and all the founding NATO nations. In fact, many of the countries that rank alongside the least punitive U.S. states such as Turkey, Thailand, Rwanda, and Russia, have authoritarian governments or have recently experienced large-scale internal armed conflicts. Others struggle with violent crime on a scale far beyond the U.S. South Africa, Panama, Costa Rica, and Brazil all have murder rates more than double that of the U.S., yet the U.S., the quote, land of the free, tops them all. The new analysis of incarceration rates and crime rates across the world reveals the U.S.'s high incarceration rates are not a rational response to high crime rate, but rather a politically expedient response to public fears and perceptions about crime and violence. The campaign to free 84-year-old Sundiata Akoli after he spent 48 years incarcerated is gaining momentum. The former Black Panther was convicted in 1973 of killing a New Jersey state trooper and was sentenced to life in prison. Such a verdict in New Jersey means that Akoli was eligible by law for parole after serving 25 years. Despite his exemplary prison record and repeated expressions of remorse, the parole board continues to deny him release. 
The Bring Sundiata Akoli Home Alliance formed to bring Akoli home this year. Like so many other elders in prison throughout the country, he faces significant health challenges. He currently suffers from early-stage dementia, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, emphysema, lingering symptoms of COVID-19, and glaucoma. Among the community leaders, coalitions, and organizations that support Akoli's release are the National Blacks and Policing Association, the New Jersey Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, the New Jersey Chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, the American Friends Service Committee, and the Center for Constitutional Rights. Akoli is an educator, mathematician, poet, visual artist, mentor, and grandfather. As he continues to battle hostile prison conditions, his health and life are in jeopardy. His health is deteriorating at his late stage in life, and the Akoli Home Alliance is working hard to bring him home. After 57 years and nine months of incarceration, Henry Montgomery walked out of prison on November 17th. His landmark Supreme Court decision provided a pathway for release for individuals condemned to die in prison for offenses committed as children. The United States is the only country in the world that sentences children to life without the possibility of parole. One of those children was Henry Montgomery. In 1963, Montgomery was 17 years old and was convicted of shooting and killing a plainclothes police officer in East Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He was initially sentenced to death, but the Louisiana Supreme Court decided that racial tensions, including Ku Klux Klan activity in that area, had influenced the jury's decision. Instead, the court resentenced him to life in prison. Montgomery is now 75 years old. He has been in prison at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, also known as Angola, for 57 years. Today, according to the Sentencing Project, a research and advocacy organization that works to reduce incarceration in the U.S., more than 53,000 people are serving life without parole sentences. The state of Louisiana, where 70% of people serving life sentences are black, has more people serving life sentences per capita than any other state in the country. More than 50 years after his original sentence, Montgomery became the petitioner in a 2016 case, Montgomery v. Louisiana, in which the court ruled that its 2012 decision, Miller v. Alabama, which banned mandatory life without parole for children, could be applied retroactively. The decisions affected more than 2,600 people who had been sentenced to life without parole who could now be resentenced while previous parole hearings needed to reach a unanimous decision to release someone from prison. Earlier this year, the policy changed, and now parole can be granted with a simple 2-1 majority. Long-term political prisoner and IDOC watch leader Kalfani Malik Khaldun helped Charles A. Rogers file a lawsuit against Justin McRae, who at one point in time was a canine dog handler at the prison. McRae unleashed a dog on Rogers, who bit him on his buttocks and calf, damaging the latter for the rest of his life. Seven days later, Kalfani experienced the wrath of the canine shakedown squad when they tore up his cell and singled him out for two pat searches. The second was a targeted strip search in the bathroom of the gym. Kalfani was given a bogus conduct report as a result of these retaliatory shakedowns and searches. He filed an appeal immediately after being found guilty on the false charge. Now, however, MCF officials are claiming that they never received an appeal and the time period in which an appeal can be filed has now elapsed.
Kalfani is in the process of pursuing a sentence modification after over 30 years of incarceration, including 20 years in which he was illegally held in solitary confinement. This bogus charge and official misconduct could jeopardize the possibility of winning a sentence modification because it will raise his security level. He had been clear of any conduct reports for years prior to this situation. Kalfani needs us to put pressure on MCF officials to acknowledge that they received the appeal he filed over a month and a half ago and allow him to refile so that he can fight this bogus charge and continue with his sentence modification. IDOC Watch asks that you please call and email officials to ask for the acknowledgement of receipt of his appeal and allow him to refile. Call Indiana Department of Corrections Headquarters at 317-232-5711, extension 2, extension 3, extension 1. We now close out the episode with more from Frank Smith, known as Big Black, who was a prisoner at Attica who participated in the uprising and successfully organized the security for outside negotiators who entered the prison. He was tortured by guards in retaliation for his participation in the uprising and gave the interview we're sharing today while being held in extended solitary confinement. We've aired some other parts of this interview in previous episodes, and in this selection, he talks about what conditions were like in Attica and what he wanted to see changed within the institution. Here he is. My name is Frank Smith. My number is 22747. I arrived in Attica Institution in February 14th, 1967. I left in January the 24th, 1969, I went to Greenhaven State Prison. I stayed there until June 1970, and I returned to Attica. Since then, I have been incarcerated in this institution. So we'll say my number runs in this month, the five-year category. This month will be five years if I don't leave for 17 months. So we say three years and change. I've been here in Attica. When I speak about change, I must speak about the oppressed and the repressed of people. Now, they speak quite literally about revolutionary. Now, as we all know, that's what a change is all about. Now, this institution, when I say institution, I mean really, sincerely mean concentration camp. Change to the worst, never a change for the best, because that's what everything is about nowadays. You see, once you are incarcerated in the articles, such as this one, all over penal institutions, they take it upon themselves, meaning the administration and up the head hall, that's the terminology really because that's the position that they put themselves in, that you no longer think or act or have the right as a human being to express your political beliefs, which that's a violation of your human rights, not the constitutional rights, your human rights as a human being to be able to talk about and do the things which is in yourself to do. There's things that we have asked for, 
in this institution and others, no consideration at all. If anything, it was depreciated. We have talked to people, we have submitted mandates and implored the service of the governor in certain instances by conditions in the penal institutions and respond was negative, no respond at all. We have spoke about medical assistance in institutions. We don't receive any. Myself, I got a heart condition. I get two pills four times a day. But if I had a broken back, the only medical assistance that I would receive would be an aspirin. If I ask to see the doctor, I am treated as if I was a cage beast, not as a human being. His thoughts and feelings, as far as an inmate is concerned, is humane. He don't think as a human being. He don't have no humane feelings. He can't relate to me because as we all know and we all see, 99% of the population administration is white. 85 to 90% is black and brown. This man can't relate to me. This is one instance I'm speaking about, which we are dealing with medical. In general, with what you asked me about what has changed in institutions. So when I speak about medical, that is just one thing. But I'm going to speak about all things in reference to the administration in these articles. Now, in order for you to relate to someone, they must feel your feelings. And a white man cannot feel my feelings because I have been oppressed and repressed for 400 and some odd years and it's a continuous thing. I have been robbed of all of my thoughts, feelings, cultures. I don't think no more for myself. All my thoughts is brought about through him. If I don't think the way he want me to think, then I am going against the system of this democracy that they so claim is for the people, by the people, of the people. That is one of the biggest faults that could ever be made. Now, we'll speak about educational-wise in the institution. There's none. It's minimum on this. For this reason, if a man come in the institution, and if he got a fifth grade education, he cannot improve that simply because if you go over to the education, which is supposed to be the school, you aren't going to receive any assistance to better your education because it's mainly consists of figureheads. You got a book, fifth grade standards. If you ask to improve, that's against society because they are enlightening you. They are making you smarter. They're giving you an education. And the things that you have done in past would be only improved now. So you'd be going against the system of this country. So they take that away from you. You can't get no further education in these institutions. They don't have the right facilities. They don't have the right people to give it to you. They don't have the people to take time to teach you, to learn you, to give you the things that is necessary for you to know self 
And that's the most important thing in these institutions. Now, further, we'll go into a recreation department. The recreation equipment is ancient. It is so messed up, unusual, until you be wasting your time to even mess with it. It's a minimum on your recreation in the institution. They got a yard consist of 100 by 100. They got 500 and some odd men in one yard. How much recreation can you possibly have? What can you do in order to participate? Everything is jammed in one corner. And with that, we don't have anything to do. We got to make a program for ourselves. So what we do, we try and learn about ourselves because they won't teach us. They won't give us the literature or any information in reference to a black man because that's what I am. I want to know about a black man. That's who I want to know about. I want to know about me. I want to know what's happening with me. I want to think about my ideology because this is mine. I want to study this. So what I do, I seek help. Maybe from my brother. And when I say brother, I mean people of hue, of all color, regardless, white, green, black, blue, red, yellow. If I want help, I seek this help. I try and get further information about me and my people so I'll be able to deal with myself and understand myself and my people. But they deprive you of this because if you are studying and trying to get any kind of further education in reference to yourself, they deprive you of that. The first thing that hit their mind is that you are plotting to overthrow this concentration camp. Now, we'll go into the food situation. If I had a dog, the food that they feed in this institution up to present, I would be afraid to give it to him. As I spoke earlier, I told you I had a heart condition. I eat once a day, and I can assure you my meals is mainly consist of two doughnuts, uh, some potato chips that I might get from this commissary that they got in the institution, which that's all we can get that's eatable, doughnuts, potato chips, and candy. Being housed in HBZ, segregation, maximum security, because that's what it is. 24 hours a day, I am locked in my cell. All day long, this is what I have on my feet. No other shoes at all, nothing else. That's the extent of it. Now, when the food is given to you, if you eat it, you take a chance of getting sick, but yet and still, you got to survive. You must keep your strength up because if you don't and you get sick, you will not receive no assistance at all, none whatsoever. As I explained before, whatever your problem might be, the only assistance that you're going to get is an aspirin. And that's a fact. The way this is issued to you, as if you was a dog, with their hands in your food, you know, and if you inquire, you get a sarcastic look, and you possibly might get a brutal remark, such as, except that, that's too good for you, this, that, you don't deserve this, you don't deserve that. Now, when I say this, I must also say this, they have officers in this institution 
that want to relate, but they are also deprived as a robot. They are denied the right to think for themselves. So the things that he would do as a man to another human being, you can't accept this because he can't give this. Because if he give this, then that makes him another a lover. That's the main word in the institution. Now, we'll speak about the head hall, which is Mancusi. One of our main things on the mandate was that the institution need another warden, superintendent. That was denied. Now they come five months later and say that this pig is going to retire. I got to say these things because this is the way the man portrays. This is the way he expresses himself to a human being. That's the category he put himself in. Now all of a sudden he's going to retire. I disagree with that. I disagree wholeheartedly. He have been relieved of duty in Attica concentration camp to a further position somewhere in the structure of that political science. He hasn't retired. The man was not doing the job that was supposed to be done and the world knew it and the governor supported it wholeheartedly he supported it. We begged to speak to the governor in reference to this man that was denied. We couldn't entertain his parents in Attica concentration camp. He refused this. It wasn't necessary, but it was necessary for him to leave Albany and go to New York to one of those banquets, $150 dinners, and sit down while we have a problem in Attica State Prison and a problem because we are oppressive people. We was oppressed. We are being stripped. And still, it's a continuation. Nothing has changed to the best. Nothing. Nothing have changed at all. My seven years since I've been in this institution and the rest of the concentration camp, it has decreased. Nothing have improved. Nothing. Now, when I speak about treatments, I must speak about this. The administration, meaning from Mancusi all the way down to the last robot. I got to say robot because he don't think. He can't communicate. He can't relate. The only thing that he can advocate on his own is violence. That's a constantly thing. My seven years in these concentration camps is violence from the lacks of the police, the officers, the administration, period. That's the best thing you know is to open your door and five or six of them brutally assault you. This has happened numerous times, I know, because I am one of the victims of one of those brutalities, cold-blooded mass whoopings that they can initiate upon a human being. This interview was originally broadcast by WBAI in February 1972. And we share it now courtesy of Pacifica Radio Archives. We'll share links to previous episodes with Frank Smith on our website.
This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.